I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Nabal, the Jezreelite, has said to him, for he has said, I will not give you my ancestral inheritance. 
He lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. His wife Jezebel came to him and said, Why are you so depressed that you will not eat? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. His wife Jezebel said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Get up, eat some food, and be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote the letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the assembly. Seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and take him out and stone him to death. The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the assembly. The two scoundrels came in and sat opposite him, and the scoundrels brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent to, Je sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth has been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Go, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab set out to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lift up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lift up your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I will bring disaster on you, I will consume you, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. The word of the God for the people of God. So, the strangest thing to me about freedom in America is not how indivisible, um, in, invisible it is to foreigners or how cherished it is to all of us, but how it's frequently portrayed as being under threat. Unlike almost all other countries in the world, America went through the 20th century without being invaded or living under totalitarian regime. And America left that century with the same constitution it's always had, intact. And yet nowhere else in the world is public discourse so saturated with the rhetoric of freedom being in daily peril, right? It's a strange thing. When, when one party is maybe about to take office, uh, an issue comes to the forefront, it is now the most important thing we've ever had to talk about because it being taken away, it being snatched away is our freedom in jeopardy. And then the other party comes up in power and it's a whole other thing that's in jeopardy of being taken away from us again. 
When America is attacked by an unknown force, the president often says something like, they're attacking us because they hate our freedoms. One feature of American life that fascinates me is the degree to which the law in general, the Constitution in particular, and what might be called the, the amphitheater of the Supreme Court have become the focal point of our culture in America. We've come to believe that the best place to discover right from wrong, to identify good and bad, to resolve ambiguity is through legal judgment and the court of law. As a lover of the nearly 30 year series with all of its various spin-offs, Law and Order, like I would not mind guessing that of all the TV shows and miniseries and Netflix originals that are available to us right now, more than half of them in some way portray a pivotal courtroom scene because we are fascinated by law. The wonderful dimension of this, the upside to this, is the remarkable statement of hope that our diverse culture really can function harmoniously and that rules can emerge to govern this flourishing society. But the risk and the downside of that is that the attention, giving, the attention given to getting the rules right can distract from the fact that a healthy society is always primarily about relationships and about people and only secondarily about rules. The question that arises is whether it's ever possible to reach a point that could, could actually be called justice. For all the drama and the excitement of electing a new president to occupy the White House every four years, it, it sometimes seems that the most significant job of the president is to appoint new members to a court because we are obsessed with law. And no one for, for a moment thinks that that president, no matter who they are, is going to be impartial in selecting that person. And everyone assumes the president will want to stack the court with like-minded people as their party. And it makes you wonder whether anyone really even believes in justice. Or if we've all just settled for the manipulation of a legal system to get the results that we want. But this shouldn't make us cynical, of course. After all, a flawed legal system is a whole lot better than no legal system at all. As Martin Luther King said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. But that brings us to our, our final book of the Old Testament and the story of Naboth's vineyard today in 1 Kings. The story is about what happens when there is no justice and the powerful get to crush who stand in their way. Ahab is king of the northern territory in the land of Israel. Beside his palace lies a vineyard and Ahab wants to purchase that vineyard. 
But Naboth adheres to the ancient property laws of Israel by which land cannot be transferred from one household to another, and so he refuses. And so Ahab just sulks. But his wife Jezebel says, what kind of king are you? She sends instructions to the nobles of Jezreel, instructing them to have Naboth lynched. The nobles obey um, Jezebel's instructions to the letter of the law, and in no time the vineyard becomes Ahab's vineyard. On the face of it, the story of Naboth's vineyard is like the hallmark test text of the Old Testament for corruption of power, of the rich getting richer and the poor staying poorer, of the powerful assuming all the, all that the world is, is theirs. They have full reign of everything. And on the face of it, this story is a precise illustration of Martin Luther King's point. If there's no law, or at least no law enforcement, there's nothing to keep someone from lynching me. And that does seem pretty important. In a society where the king and queen have unbridled power, justice is an early casualty. Of course, the kingdom of Israel was not, in fact, a lawless society. There was a law, and that law was the covenant made between God and Moses at at Mount Sinai, a covenant designed to help Israel keep the freedom God had given her by bringing her out of the land of Egypt. And because Israel was always in danger of ignoring or forgetting the covenant, God sent prophets to remind the people of their story and to restore their faithfulness. One of those prophets was Elijah. And Elijah pays a visit to Ahab in this, in this story as he's sitting in the vineyard that so recently belonged to Naboth, and Elijah speaks God's justice to Ahab as only an Old Testament prophet can. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood too. And so the bad guy doesn't get away with it. But if this is justice, this is really a rather depressing portrayal of justice. It's depressing for several reasons. Number one, justice appears to have no preventative power. It, it can't stop people from doing terrible things to one another, only punish them for, for having done so. Number two, it, it it seems that any system of law enforcement is only as effective as the force that lies behind it. And that makes justice little more than a, a grand word for the exercise of power, then. And number three, justice doesn't do the thing that Naboth's family really wants it and needs it to do in this story. And that is restore the life of Naboth himself. Justice can identify the transgression. Justice can pass the sentence. Justice can ensure punishment. Justice can stop the wrongdoing. Yet justice can't heal. Justice can't restore. Justice can't reconcile. It can't genuinely make anything better. 
but there's a lot more going on in this story than, than a gruesome tale of ruthless oppression and it's just desserts. Let's talk about what this story is really about. It's really just a retelling of the horror story of Israel. In the first place, look, look at the way Ahab rehearses all the sins of the Old Testament in just 21 verses. Like David with Bathsheba, Ahab takes what is not his and arranges the death of the one who stands in his path. Like Cain with Abel, Ahab attacks his brother out of jealousy and impatience. Like Adam with Eve, Ahab takes the fruit of the vineyard when it is obviously God's will for him not to do so. The story of Naboth's vineyard is all of Israel's sins all put together. Then look at how this story represents Israel choosing slavery over freedom. The vineyard is, a, is actually a frequent metaphor for Israel throughout scripture, but we only hear the term vegetable patch, which appears here. He's going to make it a vegetable patch on one other occasion in all of the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy when we hear it, and it refers to Egypt. So Ahab's desire to turn Naboth's vineyard into a vegetable patch is a symbol of Ahab's intent to take Israel all the way back to the conditions of slavery they were in before. When Ahab kills Naboth and takes possession of the vineyard, what we're supposed to recognize is this ironic echo of exactly what Israel did under Joshua in driving out the Canaanites and taking possession of the, the promised land. And on top of that... On top of all of that, notice how this story, injustice is portrayed in the disordering of relationships. The relationship with the land, Naboth understands his own land to be like the promised land, a gift and trust from God that cannot be sold. While Ahab, by contrast, sees the land as transferable. It's a commodity, something to mon monopolize and manipulate to get what he wants. And Second, the relationship of the king. Israel saw the monarchy as a, as a gift of trust to help the people embody the will of God. And Ahab saw the throne as a mechanism for him to get what he wanted, what he deserved by force. So this is what the story of Naboth's vineyard is comprehensively showing us. Justice unravels when we lose sight of, of who we are in relationship to God. And once justice has this great fall, it's a tall order to put it back together again. I wonder, I wonder if you yourself have been close in any way, close enough to have an experience of justice or injustice, to feel the profound pain of this overarching story that tells everyone's story. Maybe you've been the victim yourself of, of cruelty or crime, or, or maybe you know someone who has been. Maybe you yourself have, have done something seriously wrong and, and don't know how you could ever restore relationships. Maybe you have been close to someone who's been some some part of this spiral of justice and injustice and you've seen how lives can be wrecked by it 
there really is only one thing that can make it better. One thing. There really is only one thing that can make any difference in a situation where you can't bring Naboth back. There really is only one thing that can prevent an act of merciless force and the crushing of an innocent life and a vendetta of vindictiveness and a cascade of vigilante revenge. And that single thing is forgiveness. Today, today there are plenty of dispossessed Naboths and plenty of unjust Ahabs on which to focus our attention. When we see Naboth die, we tend to push forgiveness back till later. We're outraged by the lynching. We're full of horror about the way Ahab treats land and law and liberty. We're worried about seeming naive or soft even, or being powerless to stop Ahab and Jezebel doing it all over again to someone else again. In short, we push forgiveness aside because we think it gets in the way of justice. So we, we charge in with our own version of justice and, and we get so consumed with that version of justice that we never get around to the forgiveness part. So I, I invite you to put the Naboth story alongside this story that you know well from the gospel. Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee. A woman comes in who everyone knows is a sinner. And she bathes Jesus' feet with her tears and she dries his feet with her hair. And Simon is furious with Jesus. But Jesus turns the tables on Simon and he points out the multiple ways that Simon has been rude to him, yes. And Jesus says there's only one thing to be done with wrongdoing, whether it's a sin of commission done to one, to another like the woman's or, or a sin of omission done to oneself like Simon's. And that thing is forgiveness. Forgiveness shouldn't be the last thing Christians have to say in the face of injustice should be the first thing. Forgiveness says you can hurt me, but you can't take away my allegiance to Christ. You can be cruel to me, but you can't make me become like you. You can crush me, but you can't, you can't put yourself outside the mercy of God. And so why do we forgive? Because we don't want to turn into creatures of bitterness locked up in the past. We don't want to be, want to, to be given over to a hatred that lets those who've hurt us continue to dominate our lives. Because unlike Simon, we know we're sinners too. And we can't withhold from others the forgiveness we so desperately need. Why do we forgive? Because Jesus, in his cross and resurrection, has released the most powerful energy in the universe, and we want to be a part of it and to be filled with it. 
because we know that every form of justice, all the systems for setting things straight have failed because Jesus is dying for us to forgive. Jesus is dying for us to stop our shame and to beg for forgiveness. Jesus is dying for us to end our our hard-heartedness and offer the hand of mercy. Jesus is dying for us to forgive. And why do we forgive? Because forgiveness, and this is what the Old Testament teaches us, this is what the value, this is the value we find in the in the book of Kings, is forgiveness is the justice of God. Forgiveness is the justice of God. That's why a society that has forgotten how to forgive can never truly know what justice looks like. Justice can't make things right. Even forgiveness can't make things right on its own. It takes repentance, it takes reconciliation, it takes, it takes making amends, it takes healing, but all of these start with forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't the end of the process, it's the beginning. Forgiveness is, is the Christian word for justice. Because when Christ entered the story of the vineyard, he didn't become a better version of Ahab he became Naboth. They wanted him to be a better version of Ahab, but he became Naboth. And he was condemned on trumped up charges, and he was lynched, and his justice was to pray, Father, forgive. And his resurrection showed that God's forgiveness really does make things better in a way that our justice cannot. If only we were a people known by everyone for forgiveness. What if? But we're not. We're known for being obsessed with the law. If only what we were renowned for was forgiveness, that's what Jesus is dying for. Because forgiveness is the justice of God. Pray with me. God, in, in, in our heads, we have a picture of Ahab, and we have all kinds of faces to put on that. We have a picture of Naboth. We have a picture of, of the one who has been robbed, the one who has been mistreated, and the one who does that mis mistreating. And we are longing to find justice. We're longing for people to get what they deserve and we're longing for, for, for new laws and new ways, new ways that we can, we can turn things around to get, to get retribution for those who have who have not been treated well. And these are good things. We know that being a part of your, of a movement of justice is a good thing. But 
but God, make forgiveness our first choice. In a, in a world where we build up, we build up walls against our Ahabs. And we push them aside as almost unworthy of our prayer. We ask God you would teach us forgiveness. That forgiveness would be so deeply seated in every Christian that it would be truly the justice of God for the world. We join together in that prayer that you taught us to pray, that in the very word says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. We join in that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 